What's up, Beardos? This is Brenda Sanders, and you're listening to episode 162 of The Bearded Vegans. Basically, our whole philosophy boils down to you. don't be a jerk. Don't really answer the question first. I'm not answering the question. I really hope people didn't tune into yours talking about beards. Welcome to the show. I'm Paul. And I'm Andy. And we are the Bearded Vegans, a podcast featuring a dissection of all things vegan. If you're just tuning in for the first time, you can find all of our previous episodes at thebeardedvegans.com, and you can always reach us by emailing beardvegans at gmail.com. In today's episode, we continue our winter break interview series with Brenda Sanders. Paul, that's the shortest introduction ever. I know. I'm surprised you didn't c- c- command V, paste something in there real quick at the end and make me stumble over it. Well, you know, normally I feel like I would include whoever our interview subjects, th- their credentials, like right in the beginning. But as you'll learn in the interview, Brenda Sanders' credentials and like resume is so long, it's hard to really nail down one specific thing. Uh, Brenda's involved with or like started Afro Vegan Society, Thrive Vegan Community Center in Baltimore, uh, Pep Foods, which is now transitioning to the Greener Kitchen, Better Health, Better Life, does speaking engagements like does like I feel like we just barely even cracked the surface. Uh, we did. It was almost just more like an overview of all of the the projects that she has started and that she's involved in. And we we went longer than expected. I think we talked for like about an hour and. It really, there is just so much more to Brenda, but I think for those that are not familiar with her work, this will be a really good primer and introduction to the work that she does. That's awesome. Much like last week's episode where we recorded this soon after I did my interview, I have not yet listened to this, to this interview yet. So, so dear listener, I am also excited to listen to this along (laughs) with you. All right. So, Paul, what what is this thing that we're doing right here? We don't normally just jump right into these interviews. But uh, if you listen last week, you know that we're on our winter break interview series. So we're recording a bunch of interviews and introductions in advance so that we can get a little bit of time off in December and I think the first week of January as well. So we're, we're t- sort of taking this time to interview people that we think are doing really cool things, really important things in the animal rights space, in the, the vegan space. And, and Brenda certainly falls under that category. Uh, we have a fantastic interview that's coming out next week as well. And we're also going to we're going to pluck a few special classic interviews from the archives and give it a new little introduction to all of those as well, which I don't know, I'm excited about all of these interviews, actually, Paul. Like, I feel like we don't have too many interviews on the show for a number of reasons, but one of which is because. Uh, everything we do is so horribly last minute. Like often we're, <laughs> we're figuring things out like five minutes after we were supposed to have started to record. And like, you know, when you interview these people that are doing such important work, you really want to do it justice and you really want to make sure that they get a good interview and they're interested and uh, that they're not just wasting their time. So this was like a nice exercise to force us to talk to some people that we've been meaning to talk to and, and get them on record and, and get them on the podcast. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I'm I'm excited about this, and and I want to say hopefully in the future we'll be able to intersperse because when we started the podcast, I feel like we we had more interviews, and then we've kind of fallen off that because, like you said, Andy, for, well, for a multitude of reasons. But 
the interviews are really nice and it's good to get these different perspectives. It's good to have these people that are doing this awesome work and, and be able to talk to them and see what they're doing. So hopefully in the future, we'll be able to <laughs> get our act together more regularly and, and do more interviews. Yeah, well, I mean, we've gotten a great response to the the interview that you did with Mr. Hip last week already. It's only been out for a few days at this point, but uh, some people said it's their favorite episode ever. So maybe we just need to talk less, Paul. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> talk less, smile more, Andy. Yes. So, okay. So, Paul, uh, with that being said, with this being somewhat of a break and it's all interviews, that means we're not really going to be talking about things that are going on and... You know, last time we took our break and we just like didn't really check or answer emails for like a month. And I think we're probably going to do <laughs> the same thing while we're on a little break here. We've already, you know, we've already gotten so many emails from people that want us to talk about PETA's list of animal friendly idioms because that's stirring up <laughs> the Twitter sphere. Apparently, uh, we got the big one, which is uh, the legal case in the UK that's going to be deciding if vegans should have the same protections as uh, religious people. Uh, someone sent me uh, Ted Nugent running his mouth about animals being killed in crop productions on <laughs> no, Joe Rogan's pod. There's, there's so many things for us to talk about. And I'm just saying this to let you know, we know what's going on and maybe we'll talk about it in the new year, but uh, you can talk amongst yourself in our absence. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't hear about that Ted Nugent one. I'll have to, check that out oh uh, well, i'll send you the clip i'll send you the clip. it's just you know it's it's what you'd expect <laughs> uh so okay so we do have one announcement to make before we move on and this is something that i feel like pairs well with today's episode and i think people that are intrigued by what brenda's talking about could would certainly be interested in this as well so we figured we'd make the announcement uh and this is coming to us from uh, dr abreeze harper who of course is doing some amazing work and this is a workshop that's happening on january 22nd it's an online workshop it's called lulu and the lobster how systemic racism and anti-blackness affect animal advocacy so i'm going to read a little bit from the description on this Many animal advocacy and or vegan oriented organizations and individuals do not have a strong racial equity literacy or incentive to integrate more inclusive frameworks to reach their goals. Unfortunately, such a low literacy negatively affects how racial minorities such as black people in the United States engage with animal advocacy, which impacts everyone's potential to alleviate the suffering of non-human animals. For this micro workshop, Dr. Harper will introduce concepts and tools that engender alternative ways for animal advocates and organizations to integrate and implement inclusion and equity beyond cosmetic diversity. Such DEI tools will include critical social fiction and anti-racism pedagogies within the context of animal advocacy. Participants will leave with beginner tools and frameworks to enhance how they engage with diversity, equity, and inclusion as animal advocates and or vegans within the United States. That sounds awesome. Yeah. So that's, again, that's January 22nd. We'll put a link to that in our show notes, but it's also, you can go to Sista Vegan, that's S-I-S-T-A-H vegan.com. And I'm sure you'll find a link to it up there as well. So I uh, figured we would pass that on to our listeners. Very cool. Andy, we would be remiss if we didn't, <laughs> if I didn't ask you what you've been eating. <laughs> we can't even, even in our break, gotta, gotta ask you, Andy, what have you been, what have you been eating? Well, the only thing that I really want to mention is, uh, you know, I've talked about Ramen Hood at least once or twice on this show before, and I was very excited to find that this LA-based ramen, all-vegan ramen shop was doing a pop-up in New York City for a couple of months. 
And so I went down there as a part of my really late birthday celebration. Obviously, I'm sure you can guess what I did, which was an escape room. And then <laughs> afterwards, went to Ramen Hood. And I got to say, New York City still holds up. The vegan egg, still really gross. Still do not recommend it to anybody. <laughs> but of course, one must try it because it is there. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Ramen Hood, just love the stuff that they're doing. They got that thick-ass broth as they call it, and it's just its so delicious. Uh, the new thing that I had this time were these tuna crisps. It was like this crispy, crunchy ball filled with like a, a beet tuna concoction of some kind, and it was quite tasty. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, so that's going on until I think January 19th is when that ends in New York City. So if you had not heard about that, you should definitely go down and check it out. Paul, make it happen. Go I try know, it. I know. I'm going to – Andy knows that I'm not a big ramen guy, and – and I, he's a little I, ramen guy. I'm a little ramen guy, and I, I still do want to try this though, just because Andy's Andy's talked about it so many times. So it's, right. it's feasible for me to to actually make it there, unlike California. Yeah, it's just a, a quick, you know, it's just a quick detour off the highway into Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Paul, what went in that beautiful mouth of yours this past <clears throat> week? All right, so this the last weekend I went to this vegan mac and cheese festival in Baltimore. On a whim, I was like, you know what, S- screw it. I need to do something, so I'm gonna go to this vegan mac and cheese festival. It was pretty cool. It, it it you have to pay to get in, but each booth kind of that was that had mac and cheese. They they gave you tiny little sample cups, so I got to sample some mac and cheeses. I I think I wanted to give a shout out to the best one. I in my opinion, which was this place stall eleven, and so. This event was taking place in this building called R House. That's the letter R, R House, not. <laughs> Not the madness song, but uh, <laughs> all right, Andy. I thought that would get a bigger laugh from you, but <laughs> ska humor. Well, I was but, just thinking if we were still putting unique outro music, that would be the outro music, but oh, we perfect. don't do that anymore. So, um, and and so in this this place, our house, it, it, it's kind of like a uh, one of those buildings that's just a bunch of different eatery places around. And I didn't really explore it too much. It seemed like there was maybe some vegan options in some of the places. That place, have you ever had Little Babies ice cream, Andy? There's one in Philly. No, but I know we've talked about Little Babies. <laughs> okay, we've talked about Little Babies. There was a Little Babies there. But but this place, Stall 11, which is also a a permanent place in our house, um, is an all-vegan place. And and they also had a, a presence in at the Vegan Mac and Cheese Festival, which was in a separate room. And their mac and cheese, it was just, it was like spicy. And it was, oh, so, so good. And I loved it. And... And which is which is good, I guess, because if you want it, it's it's at stall 11 it are in our house. It's not because every other place, you know, was either a different a different had like a different location or some of them probably didn't even have permanent locations. So, yeah, this one is actually accessible to you all the time if you live near or in Baltimore. So definitely check that out. And while I was at the Vegan Mac and Cheese Fest, I ran into two beardos. So just a shout out to Linda and Tony. Thank you for for saying hello. Well, Paul, it's interesting that you mention a, a mac and cheese competition because also on Brenda Sanders' resume was pioneering the first vegan mac and cheese cook-off. Also in, in Baltimore, correct? Also in Baltimore, but I assume that that would have been at the Thrive Vegan Community Center if that was the one that she put on. Well, this was not. This was something different. I know, Andy, that is in, I think, January or February or something. It's coming up, the vegan mac and cheese cook-off. This was not a, this was not a competition. This was just... 
come and eat mac and cheese it's just oh okay that's great i love celebrate that. <laughs> celebrate mac and cheese celebrate yeah. the entity that is mac and cheese fair enough fair enough <laughs> <laughs> all right well with that said paul that's all we got to talk about this week you know if you want to support the podcast beardvegans.com slash beardo itunes reviews follow us on the facebook the instagram all that good stuff um i will give a plug right up front for brenda sanders GoFundMe. it's one of the main things we wanted to talk about to fund the very worthwhile work that's happening over at the thrive vegan community center in baltimore we're going to put a link to that in the show notes uh so with that in mind paul let's just get straight to this interview uh with the the one and only brenda sanders Brenda, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So we always like to start with asking people, what initially brought you to veganism? What did that journey look like for you? It has been a pretty long journey. Uh, 21 years ago was when I um, initially decided to stop eating all animal products. Um and that was based on uh, some books and stuff that I had read and some things that I was uh, starting to get into um, around like health and uh, like the whole sacred body thing and connecting to the planet. And uh, it was kind of a phase, um, but it uh, definitely was the beginning of me starting to try to have more of an awareness of like myself and the world and my connection to it. So, um, yeah, that's how that started. And did you, did your motivations change over time or did you have like a light bulb moment at any point? I had a few because it was very, initially it was very self-centered. Um, and then, uh, as time went on, I started to learn more and do more research and, uh, came across a lot of footage of animal abuse and, and that kind of thing. I learned a lot more about the environmental impacts of our um, consumption choices. So the journey sort of started out um, as a pretty selfish endeavor. And then over time and over the years, it just sort of blossomed and grew into a much more circumspective way of looking at things. And I, I know you as just sort of this activist that is always doing a, a million different things. And I'm wondering, were you involved in activism prior to going vegan? I was always uh, somebody who spoke up about what I believed in, much to <laughs> many people's dismay, <laughs> mostly friends and family. And so I was, you know, always just sort of talking about uh, veganism and uh, sort of proselytizing, I guess, in the early years. But it wasn't until around 2011 when I found out about a study, a Johns Hopkins study, that compared two neighborhoods in Baltimore. One was an affluent white neighborhood. The other one was a low-income black neighborhood. And um, the it was just a striking study. The life expectancy, um, there was a 20-year difference um, in in life expectancy between the white and the black communities. And the only difference that they saw was, um, well, the major difference that they saw was uh, the food that the, the people in the two different communities were eating. And that was just 
a wake up call for me because 20 years, I mean, <laughs> these low income black folks are, are, are dying 20 years sooner because of their diet. And here I was feeling the best I had ever felt in my life and, you know, just really happy with my choices, you know, my consumption choices. And so I felt like I needed to do something because that's kind of who I am. So I went and I emptied my savings account and I uh, bought all this cooking demo equipment. And I just started going from church to church and community center to community center, just offering to do these cooking demos because I, you know, these plant-based cooking demos, of course, because I just wanted to change the way people ate, change the way people looked at food, the way people thought about food. Um, And that was the beginning of it. And it just sort of blossomed from there. So, so at first you said that it was for sort of selfish reasons, like your own sort of personal health, but and I guess I tend to think of, you know, health motivated veganism, like I'm glad if any, you know, whatever brings people to it is awesome. But I don't tend to think of health motivated veganism as like political in nature. But it sounds like with what you're saying that it almost it could be considered that way. Like, do you look at it in that light? Well, for certain communities, for sure, especially for low income communities of color that are specifically targeted with animal products, with the most unhealthy food to take control of your health is sort of an act of resistance in a way. It's it's saying to the powers that be, I'm taking back control of my life. And in that way, you know, it, it becomes sort of a movement. And so I would say for sure. Uh, within the communities where I work, choosing to reject animal-based agriculture for health reasons is a political act. Absolutely. And so was was going around and doing these cooking demos, was that the seed that started Better Health, Better Life? Or when did that come into the picture? Yeah, yeah. Because um, I found that I started to get support from people who wanted to donate, who wanted to help, who just wanted to be a part of what I was doing. And they, you know, kept asking me like, oh, do you have a nonprofit? Do you have a nonprofit? And, you know, that was the least of my concerns at the time. I was just like, I have to save everybody. (laughs) And so, um, but I I finally did uh, go ahead and get the nonprofit so that people could start um, to give support. And I uh, named the series of cooking demos that I was doing Passport to Better Health. Um, And that was under the Better Health, Better Life uh, nonprofit, um, which went strong for a few years um, until I sort of had a breakthrough with um, connecting with animals and connecting with the planet and then, I don't know, it, it just felt like um, Better Health, Better Life wasn't big enough for what I was becoming and for what I wanted the work to become. And so what what would be big enough to encapsulate that? Is that when Pep Foods came along? Well, um, it was sort of a multi-layered <laughs> process. Uh, certainly, as I was um, doing this work and engaging with people and talking to people and, and, and educating people about these issues, the question that kept coming up was, okay, now what, what do I do? 
And I think that um, for me, being somebody who is very, very solution oriented, I just no longer felt good about uh, telling people what the problem was and walking away. And um, and so I started I kind of um, started reaching out to other people in the Baltimore area who had similar um, interests and um, experience in, in certain areas of plant based cooking and, and, and health and wellness. And um, and we formed a cooperative. Uh, which was Pep Foods. And the whole point of that was to start to bring some solutions to these issues that existed in, in these communities. Um, because, you know, they people in low-income communities of color have real tangible, like, challenges that they need to overcome before they can just jump out there and say, oh, hey, I'm vegan and this is great. You know, there's issues of food access, there's issues of affordability, um, there's issues of relatability, just culturally speaking, being able to um, relate to this shift uh, in in eating and, and in the way that they think. Um, and so we wanted to sort of create this platform that could ease the way for people to make this transition. Um, because it's one thing to tell people what the problem is, and it's a completely other thing to then provide support and resources so that they can feel empowered to change their situation. So that was why Pep Foods needed to exist. We needed to create a food system, a plant-based food system here um, in these communities that was accessible and affordable to people so that they wouldn't have the same obstacles to changing their lives. And that's what we did. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, tell me a little bit more about Pep Foods. Like how exactly were you tackling those problems? I know Pep Foods was sort of a multifaceted enterprise. Yeah. So um, the first part of it was education. Um, and so <laughs> there was just like a small group of activists who were really, really passionate about vegan living. And so we created these different workshops and, and, and education classes. And um, at that time, we didn't have a base of operations. So we, again, we just took it to the streets and you know tried to find places that would host us. We um, were doing um, a six week vegan education program called the Vegan Living Program, um, as well as Eating for Life workshops, which were sort of hands-on and brought people in and um, taught them how to prepare this food. Um, but one of the questions that kept coming up was, well, if I'm not going to eat meat and dairy products, what do I eat? Because remember, this food does not exist in the hood. This food does not exist in the barrio. This, this, is, this is stuff that you find at you know, Whole Foods and other natural food stores, um, at least at that time. Now, I mean, it's just exploding. Um, and, and you can find a lot of um, plant-based foods in regular grocery stores. But at that time, it was still pretty hard to find affordable plant-based um, alternatives to the meat and the cheese and the eggs. And, you know, a lot of people who live outside 
of these conditions would just say, well, beans and rice are cheap. Beans and rice are cheap. You hear that all the time. And yet, you know, if given the choice, not very many people will choose to eat beans and rice every single day for the rest of their life. And so, you know, or at least, um, you know, that that just the prospect of that is not the most appealing. And so we wanted to create foods that would be appealing. Um, like I said, there were chefs, there were caterers, there, you know, were folks who just knew how to make food, um, knew how to manipulate um, plant-based foods to sort of mimic the uh, animal products that people were used to. And so we developed a line of um, wheat protein, meat substitutes. We developed a line of soy cheeses, a non-vegan, I'm sorry, a, a non-egg mayo, eggless mayo. Um, and we just kind of went from there. And so we were able to sort of come to the public and say, look, we made these products, they're affordable because that was, we wanted to match ground beef. We wanted to match craft cheese. We wanted to make sure that that caught, that, that these products weren't cost prohibited for anybody. Um, and we were able to do that on a very, very, very local level. <laughs> like we would have, we would make lots of products. We would just bring a bunch of our product to the events and then people could purchase it there and take it home to their families. And it just started to gain momentum. And ultimately, our goal with Pep Foods was to create such a buzz around it, um, around the foods, around the products, that people would start asking for it at the corner stores, at the carryouts, at the convenience stores, and that kind of thing. So that has been a slow process. <laughs> We're still working on that getting it like into getting the products into places um, in the hood. And so at this point, we've been bringing the food to people and we've had a lot of success and we've been picking up a lot of momentum with that process. So that's so awesome. And and so then sort of there's been this transition to greener kitchen. Is it just a name change? Does pet food still exist or is it changed entirely to greener kitchen? Well, we're always adapting and always growing, um, and we sort of have to. And so what happened was that um, people fell in love with the with the animal, the meat alternatives and the um, non-dairy cheeses and stuff, and they wanted to have a place where they could go and purchase it. And initially we did not want anything to do with like opening up a restaurant or cafe or anything like that um, because it just seemed like it would be just really intense and, and a lot of work and that it would sort of take away from the activism that we knew we needed to be doing. And so we resisted it for so long. <laughs> and then um, the popularity of the products got to a point where we needed a production facility. We needed a place uh, where we could like bring folks in and actually sort of automate the process a little bit more. Uh, we found the perfect place for that, this huge commercial kitchen, um, but it also had a front retail area. And so we just ignored the front retail area for the longest time. We were like, we're not gonna do it. We're not gonna do it. There's no way we're gonna do it. But then eventually we just decided to do it. And um, and so we incorporated um, a deli, a, a retail space where we would sell our products deli style. 
And then we opened up the kitchen as well to other vegan food businesses to help them to sort of um, build capacity and, and build up their clientele. And so we sort of became a vegan deli slash food business incubator. <laughs> um, and so, and so that's sort of where we are now. We help plant-based food businesses build capacity and we make sure that people are able to purchase our products out of the retail space. And we still are uh, manufacturing our products to, to sell to the public. So it's a lot going on with the greener kitchen <laughs> right now. It, it, it's also, obviously we chose the name um, intentionally because one of the things that's definitely missing from this discourse in marginalized communities is the environmental impact of animal agriculture and the environmental community isn't doing enough in these communities to sort of uh, disseminate this information, but it needs to be learned and it needs to be known in all the communities in every community, because in order for us to make any real substantial change, it can't just be affluent people who have access to this information. It can't just be, you know, people uh, who have higher education and, you know, like it has to be everybody. It has to be a, a whole movement towards shifting the paradigm. And so, um, so our work is about getting all this information into these marginalized communities where it's not reaching. And, and yeah, what has the reaction been from the local community, I guess, especially to the vegan deli? <laughs> well, um, it's interesting. Uh, first of all, I never, I, I could not have imagined that folks in marginalized communities of color would take to this information the way that they did and just really, uh, welcome it and sort of be hungry for it. Um, I'm an optimist, but even I was like, whoa, like people are ready for this information. Um, and, and we have been warned. I've, I've been warned from the beginning, you know, poor people don't care about this stuff. You know, they're never going to care about animals. They're never going to care about the environment. You know, they don't care about their health. Look at what they eat. I mean, these were the things that were told to me before I started this work and as I started doing this work. And my experience has been the exact opposite. Folks want a better life. They just don't know how to have it. And so when you come with this information, they eat it up much more so than affluent people who already think that they know how everything works. <laughs> and so, you know, the, the success of what we've been doing here with the education and the resources and the support has just been it's been astronomical. Um the, the community, our location is it's definitely in an area that does, you know, where folks don't necessarily have access to um, healthy, fresh foods. And so we're located right next to a chicken spot. Like right next door is a place that sells like fried chicken. And so oftentimes people walk into the greener kitchen thinking that they're walking into the chicken spot. <laughs> and, and it just so happens that we uh, developed a, um, a wheat and soy based fried chicken product. 
<laughs> and so, you know, they'll come in and be like, okay, what is this? And we're like, hey, you know, welcome. And and we just kind of talk up the product and, and get them to sample it. And once they sample it, they're like amazed. They're yeah. absolutely amazed. Like most of them don't really know what the deal with vegan is and, and plant-based eating and that whole thing. But it's all about getting the food in their faces. <laughs> and once we do that, I, we've had so many people say, well, I don't even need to go next door. I'll just eat this. And it happens over and over and over again. And so um, we actually have a lot of repeat customers, loyal, loyal, loyal customers that are right from the neighborhood who just love the food. They love that they're able to take this food home to their families. They love that it's affordable. I mean, so many people, one woman actually teared up and I was just like, are you okay? And she was like, I just never thought that I would be able to afford this food. And it was just such an emotional moment for me because I know exactly what she means. I grew up food insecure. I grew up extremely poor in the projects of Baltimore City. I know what it feels like to not have a choice as to what you're going to eat. And, you know, for us to be able to bring that to people, to bring them an opportunity to actually eat healthy food, to feed their families healthy food, and and the, the empowerment that comes from that is just the best work in the world. That's amazing. Do you feel like that the deli aspect could be replicated or, or do you ever plan on branching out and having more locations in the city? What we want to do and what we're working on right now is creating a whole system. Um, and, and actually a, a, a woman who works in the nonprofit sector in the animal rights movement suggested that we call our work an, an ecosystem because she said we are covering every single aspect, you know, uh, and, and, and so it just, it all comes together to, to create something beautiful. Um, we're trying to create a system that is completely reproducible and then take it to other cities. And that, you know, because I, I don't want this to be a local thing. I don't want, I mean, I, I would love for Baltimore, Baltimore to be the next, you know, vegan Mecca, obviously. Um, and I, and I would like credit for that, please. And thank you. Um, it's on the record now. <laughs> thank you. Um, but at the same time, I want to be able to do this in Detroit and do this in Atlanta and do this in, you know, uh, St. Louis and, and, and Oakland and wherever I want, I want to have it so well organized and running like such a well-oiled machine that we could just take it and plop it down in any other marginalized community and it just sort of take off. And so that's what our goal is. We are activists. We are not, um, you know, capitalists. <laughs> we are not about trying to have uh, the, the most expensive product or the most profitable product. We want to change this world. That's what our goal is. And that's what our focus always, that, that's always what we're focused on. How can we shift the paradigm? How can we change people's minds about the way that they see the world? And so that's, that's always going to be our mission and our goal. 
Well, I, I love that. And I just love how just sort of community oriented everything is. Um, switching gears just a, a little bit, you also started the Afro Vegan Society. So <laughs> if you could talk a, a little bit about that, you know, why did you decide to create it and, and what kind of work are you doing with that? Yeah, because I had so much free time. So like, <laughs> why not? Right. Afro Vegan Society came um, out of this understanding that for certain communities, we needed to create a system of supporting resources that would just ease the way and that it needed to happen at a national level, that the local work is amazing, but that this is a global issue. (laughs) And that so we needed to sort of provide baseline support to people in marginalized communities of color, in low-income communities of color, that would give a, a kind of support that may not necessarily be needed in other communities, um, but that are definitely needed in in communities where, like, there's so much at stake. And so, and and there's like, so just talking about food systems in general. Black folks have such a, a just terrible history um, in this country, especially in, in the U.S., especially um, with food. And and there's a lot of trauma that's been um, inflicted on our community. And so that needs to be addressed. Food for a lot of people is a comfort is a connection to tradition, is a way that families and friends relate to each other. And so it's just, it just holds so much importance. And to come in and disrupt that balance has to be careful work. And a part of that work is providing an alternative and providing the support and resources that people need to make it not a chore (laughs) to make transitioning to this more compassionate, healthier, um, oftentimes, and more environmentally responsible way of life needs to not be the hardest thing that you've ever done. And a lot for a lot of us, it was the hardest thing we've ever done, but that's why we need to step up and make sure that people have the resources that they need so that it doesn't keep being the hardest thing that everybody has ever done. Uh, And so with Afro Vegan Society, I wanted to really, really um, focus on the cultural aspects of um, of this transition and to really create um, an open and supportive and welcoming environment for folks of color who may not find that in the mainstream vegan movement. That part was really, really important to me. Like I wanted to make sure there was a safe place for people to go. You know, if if they somehow found their way, you know, they stumbled into the mainstream animal rights or the mainstream vegan movement and sort of got chewed up and spit out the way that I did, that there's somewhere else for them to go to continue that journey and that they don't just you know, get discouraged and, and just feel like this just isn't for me. And there, there's, there's nothing in this for me. And that's why 
Af- I felt like Afrobeating society needed to exist. And right now it's just a platform where people can go to get information, to get resources. I don't know what to cook. Come over to Afro-Vegan Society. We have lots of recipes for you. We have, you know, books and film, you know, film recommendations and blog posts about all manner of things and essays to give you a broader understanding of why, you know, it's important for our communities to start looking at the world differently. And, you know, just it's just a, a, a place um, where where lots of information exists where people can feel comfortable being in their skin and having these thoughts and ideas and beliefs. And, um, and, and that safety piece is, I think, the most important piece. Yeah. And so you sort of mentioned being chewed up and spit out by the, the mainstream animal rights movement. And I'm wondering if maybe you could speak to that a little bit, because I, you know, I've seen Afro-Vegan Society uh, tabling at mainstream events. I've seen, you know, at like the Animal Rights Conference, for instance. And unfortunately, as I'm sure obviously you know better than anyone there's there's plenty of racism within the mainstream movement and i'm wondering like what has your experience been sort of bringing this message into spaces that are often hostile to that message oh my gosh um it's still really difficult to talk about some of the experiences that i've had and then as i brought more people sort of into the fold watching them have similar and sometimes worse experiences has just been really awful for me. So when I stumbled, I, I didn't even know about the animal rights movement. I just sort of discovered all this stuff organically. But then once I found out that there was like this whole movement of people who felt this connection to animals and felt this connection to the planet in much the same way I did, I was ecstatic. I was like, wow, you know, have I finally found my people? And the answer was no, no, you have not. I brought my blackness into the movement and found that that was absolutely unacceptable. Um, As long as I was sharing, you know, photos of of cute animals or, you know, talking about the the injustices that we humans were committing, you know, against animals. Everybody loved me. Everything was great. I was 100% accepted. But the moment that I ever had the audacity to speak about issues that were specific to me and that were specific to my community, I was shunned. I was, you know, my thoughts and ideas were devalued. And I found this out shortly after Mike Brown was killed. And I started to speak up about the issues um, around police brutality and anti-blackness and white supremacy. And the people who I had connected to in the animal rights movement flipped they were just like, this has no place in the animal rights movement. The animal rights movement is about animals. You know, you had your time. Now it's at the animal's time. Just this whole, uh, just just this whole terrible devaluing of issues that are still very, very real and very urgent within my community. And I found that in order for me to exist harmoniously within the vegan movement, within the animal rights movement, I had to 
divorce or I was expected to divorce myself from my reality as a black woman. And I mean, that's just obviously not something that I can do. I can't not be black. (laughs) I can't not be a woman. And, um, and so I, I just, I encountered so much conflict. And then speaking of the animal, right, you know, the, the big events like the animal rights conference, I brought some wonderful, just kind hearted, beautiful, spirited people (laughs) um, into that environment. And they had the absolute worst experience. I mean, we were set up with our Afro-Vegan Society um, banner and, you know, with all of our materials and everybody was all excited. And, you know, the, the people who were volunteering at the table actually kept a list of all the terrible things that people walked up and said. And at some point they just like put it down because they just filled up like whole sheets of paper with just terrible, terrible things that people were walking up and saying to them. Um, Things like, well, why does there need to be an Afro-vegan society? What does race have to do with the animals? And I mean, even stuff that was really bad. Like, well, I heard that your people, I I think one comment was that just really blew everybody away was um, how do you expect to get your people to stop eating chicken? was, was, was a comment that was made. Um, and, and it, it, you know, there were lots, lots and lots and lots of those kinds of things. And so, you know, it, it kind of is, uh, demoralizing to come into a space that's supposed to be all about, you know, compassion and kindness and, and to get this kind of reception from people. It, it has not been, great. (laughs) It's not been great. So that was that that's the reason why um, I knew that an organization like Afro Vegan Society needed to exist. Wow. Yeah, that is obviously horrible. Um, How do you so do you find that you you work better to sort of working on the local grassroots level then or because I know you still you do speak you spoke at VegFest UK, you're all over the place and I guess, you know, what is it like sort of trying to navigate working seemingly mostly within your local community, but then also sort of taking your message to wider audiences? Well, um, I actually decided this year in 2018 that I would um, cut back on a lot because in 2017, I just did so much public speaking and I was invited out to every single thing it felt like. Um, and it really did take away from the the local work because there's so much. I, I've never done a talk twice. So or I've never done the same talk twice. So there's just so much time and effort and preparation and, you know, everything that goes into putting together a talk and um, and then all the travel and everything. Um, it did get to be a lot. And so this year, I probably did about a quarter or a fifth of the number of speaking engagements um, that I had done the previous year. And I, I, so the local work, obviously, is about building community. And that's where my heart is. Being able to travel 
and talk to people um, in other cities and and um, in other countries. It it's also great work. People come up after every single talk, and they say how inspired they are, and they say that you know they want to do this same kind of work in their communities. Um, oftentimes, I've had people say that they've wanted to try to do something, but they just weren't brave enough to jump out there. But now they feel like they can after having heard about our work here in Baltimore. Um, so obviously, that's really rewarding. And it kind of goes with the mission to spread this and, and create um, an entire movement, a, a community based movement. Um, and so it is important. Uh, but it definitely does take its toll. Um, and and it, it, it can potentially take away from the momentum of the work here, which is why I have to try to balance that out. And speaking of building that sort of local community, um, could you tell us about Thrive uh, Community Center? Yes, yes. Uh, Thrive is a culmination of all the work from, you know, going door to door, doing cooking demos to having one of the biggest festivals, vegan festivals in the world and starting a sort of frenzy around vegan mac and cheese. <laughs> We've, um, it, it, this space, this space is a culmination of all of that. It's our base of operations. It's our home. It's the place where we're able to bring people to us and build community in a much more substantial way. There are people who feel like this is their home. There are people who have expressed to us they feel most safe and most loved in this space because this is the one space where they don't have to hide who they are or they don't have to feel defensive or they don't have to explain and explain and explain, you know? And so um, this building is is sort of where it all kind of happens. So um, we had an opportunity to to get this space. It has not been easy <laughs> because I mean I personally had no idea how much work it would be to run a community center, how mu how expensive it would be to run a community center, um, and how stressful it would be to try to maintain it and, and make sure that these doors stay open. Um, but every single moment of it is more than worth it to open up those doors and have hundreds and hundreds of people come in for a cooking demo event or for, you know, uh, because they're curious about what, what is vegan food? What, what does this mean? What is plant-based food? I want to taste it, you know? And so we do things like food festivals and, and um, food tastings and, and things like that that just bring in people out of sheer curiosity and just change lives. Um, so, I mean, this is, this is it. This is, it feels like, you know, we made it. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever I step through this door, I feel like we made it. We did it. Um, and we're going to continue to do it. So we do everything here. We do cooking demos, hands-on cooking demos where people actually get to prepare the food with us. We do film screenings. We do classes, series of classes. We do social events, potlucks, dinners. It's just all kinds of stuff. Any and everything that we 
can think of to keep people engaged constantly and to continue to build community around vegan living is basically what happens out of here. So it's pretty amazing. Well, you, you mentioned some of the, the hardships and the, the challenges that you faced in doing this. I know one of them, of course, is funding this thing. And you recently posted a GoFundMe. And when you posted about it, you, it seemed like there was maybe some hesitation or, or you were sort of struggling with whether or not you should ask people for money to help fund this. I don't know if maybe that's just me reading into things, but like what led to your decision to sort of turn to the community, both online and, and locally to, to fund this? Yeah, that's very perceptive of you. <laughs> I'm actually an extremely private person. And so this whole sort of foray into the social media world has been very new and mysterious to me. And so I'm always trying to find the balance between not saying enough and saying too much. And um, so this this sort of struggle to keep Thrive open has been a very private struggle. I have just, at the point where I decided to just go ahead and, and launch the GoFundMe, I really had exhausted every single resource that I could, that I could think of, and that everybody around me could think of. And people were like, you have to do this. <laughs> you have to. Um, but I guess for me, I feel like um, I never, I don't know, I guess I was raised with this idea that you never want to impose on people. I know a lot of other people were sort of raised with that idea, like, you don't ask, you know, <laughs> you don't ask people for anything because that's an imposition, you know. Um, and, and that kind of stuck. And so it took, it took a lot actually for me to just go ahead and decide to let people know that we needed this support. Um, and, and there's just been so many people who are like, how can I help? How can I support? How can I help? And so I, I thought, you know what, there are so many people, I get standing ovations at my talks. I have people, I've had people come up and cry on me because um like literally cry and like make my clothes wet um <laughs> because they're so inspired and so moved by this work and so i thought well you know let me give folks an opportunity to actually be a part of helping this to happen um and helping to make sure that it continues to happen and so yeah it was a difficult decision for me asking for help but but i think that it was necessary. And so um, I've been really, really grateful for the support that we've gotten so far. And um, I'm hoping that that the, the momentum won't slow down, but that it'll actually pick up and that we'll get even more support. Well, we'll definitely post a link to the GoFundMe on our show notes. And we'll also put a link on the Facebook. Anyone out there wants to, to chip in, highly encourage everyone to put money towards this incredibly worthwhile work um thank you so yeah everyone definitely go check out the cofundme and you mentioned with thrive putting on these festivals and of course vegan soul fest has become this institution in baltimore and i interviewed Naja um back in episode 45 with that was like almost two years ago at this point and she is mm. one of the the co-organizers along with you um, right the event has grown so much since interviewing her back then so and i know we have a lot of new listeners as well so tell us about vegan soul fest uh, like what place does it fill in baltimore and how has it grown over the years 
Oh my goodness. So Vegan Soul Fest started out, um, for folks who don't know this story, with just an idea or with the 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 brainstorming of an idea. Naja and I uh, were both doing work, very different work, but we were both doing work um, in our community. And we were just sitting down talking at one point and thinking like, what can we do? Like, how can we be a part of spreading this information to the communities where we're doing our work? And um, I don't know who had the idea first. I say it was me. She says it was her, whatever. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> we had the idea to do a festival. Festivals are fun. Festivals are exciting. You know, there's food. There's, there's you know, uh, entertainment. There's all this stuff that just draws people in. And so as soon as we had the idea, it was just like, yes, this is something we can do. Started in 2014. We were expecting you know, four or 500 people to come out the first year. We, um, you know, we, we had hopes that we would be able to engage people, but we didn't really think that it would be that popular. I mean, it's a vegan festival in Baltimore with the word vegan in it, which um, a lot of people <laughs> advised us against. They were just like, no, 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 no. You have to say veg fest. You can't say vegan. People hate vegan. They're afraid of vegan. And I was just like, I hear you, but I want to be very clear about what this is about, you know, from the get go. I don't want, you know, to to try to kind of brush under the rug what we're about and what we're trying to do. And so we just did it. We jumped out there. We called it Vegan Soul Fest. We sort of structured it to be an educational endeavor as well as entertaining to sort of bring that balance. And so um, I brought in speakers uh, and people to do cooking demos and Naja uh, brought in, um, I think in the second year, Naja brought in um, entertainment. Um, but that first year we were expecting about four or 500 people, 1200 people came out. It was a pretty big deal. I mean, the, the local newspaper did a story about it. Baltimore's newest food, vegan food festival. And it was the, we were very happy about the outcome that first year and decided that we would keep doing it. The second year, we more than doubled that. We got about um, 3,500 people who came out um, in 2015, 2016. We had about 6,500 people. And so it just keeps growing and it just keeps getting bigger and it just keeps getting better and more popular. And um, so we've estimated that um, in, this year in 2017, we, we just had it in August, that we had about 16,000 people who came out to wow. enjoy the festival. <laughs> now, now we did have like international recording artist Maya <laughs> come out and perform. So she might have had something to do with it. Uh, she actually had a lot to do with it uh, because people were very, very excited um, about coming out to meet her and um, and hear her music and her message, which is a very vegan message. She's like super vegan. And so it was just an amazing, amazing experience. Lots and lots of great people. I mean, just, we bring the best people too. It's just like everybody is all love. Like just walking around Vegan Soul Fest every year, everybody is just happy and relaxed 
and laughing and enjoying themselves. And just the feedback that we get is just like, this is the absolute best festival, you know? And I'm not just bragging. I mean, that's the <laughs> feedback <laughs> that we get from people. We get this, this feedback from vendors. We get this feedback from attendees. We even have gotten that feedback from um, our presenters, you know, our the folks who come and do the lectures and, and the cooking demos and the performances. They're just like, this is the best place. Like, they look forward to it every year. So um, this year we're looking at bringing out 20,000. Wow. And um, th- this coming year, 2019, of course. Um, and, you know, having an even bigger headliner, um, you know, to bring out even more people, and um, we, you know, we're going to do it because we've just every year we've exceeded our expectations. So, well, I can I can definitely speak to just the fun vibe of Soul Fest. You know, I'm a vendor at so many events and they start to very much feel kind of the same. They often are very sort of um, stale. And the first year mm. that I did Vegan Soul Fest, I was like, oh, this is actually a fun event to do even as a vendor. Uh-huh if only for the entertainment that was happening there, that was something that really set the event apart. So uh, yeah, everyone should go check it out, of course. And in the last question that I want to ask you as we wrap up here actually has to do with your workload and, and, and burnout. Like you are, you seem like you just are doing so much all the time and it, it's hard to imagine you have any downtime. And I'm wondering, do you, do you get burned out? If, if no, how have you achieved that? And if yes, like, how do you, how do you address it? What do you do about that? Oh, wow. You know, I just sort of stumbled into activism. So I had no activism one-on-one course. I didn't read any books. Um, I had no idea what burnout even was because I mean, I come from you know, the, the, the corporate world where you just, you just work and you work and you work. Um, and, and there's no, I, I had never even heard of this concept of burnout before. Um, somehow doing nonprofit work is far more intense than, uh, you know, than, than the for-profit sector ever was. Um, and, and I think it's because well, I, I think that it's for a few reasons. One is that there are so few people who are doing what you're doing um, that you sort of have to pick up the slack and, and do that much more. And and the other thing is that you really care. I mean, it's where your heart is. It's, it's what you love. And so you just pour your whole self into it. And I have been sort of teetering on the brink of burnout actually for about four years and had no idea. I would just be like, oh man, like why am I just always exhausted? I wake up exhausted. What is that about? Um, or, you know, just the, the anxiety levels and the stress levels are just high all the time. Um, and that's because there's no, like it, the work doesn't let up. It never, ever, ever lets up. And so there's always this sense of urgency, urgency, urgency. I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to, got to, got to. Um, and so I, my health had started to decline um, and I didn't know why. And um, just my ability to concentrate and focus started to suffer. And, and that was 
probably due to um, lack of sleep and like overconsumption of caffeine, honestly, because I had to stay awake. I had, there's just not enough hours, especially like with the work that I'm doing. There's not, there are not enough hours in a day to get it all done. And so I just kept pushing myself and pushing myself and pushing myself. Um, and so as of late, um, anybody who is Facebook friends with me um, has sort of been on this journey with me the last few days. I just decided that I was going to um, explore this idea of self-care because it's just so mysterious to me. Like, you know, there's just the idea that you would think about yourself ever for any reason is, is just, um, it's sort of alien to me. Um, especially for like the last almost decade, all of my attention has been focused on how I can help others. And so it's been, I've been kind of clumsy. I, I don't really know what the heck I'm doing. <laughs> um, but, but I'm making an attempt. I'm making an attempt to every single day of this month, um, to do something, to do one thing that is for me and that makes me feel good and that um, brings me some kind of peace or happiness or um, enjoyment. Um, and so, you know, obviously I'm only on day four, but it's already such a chore. And, uh, <laughs> and um, but I, I'm going to stick with it. I'm going to see it through. And hopefully by the time I come out on the other end, starting the new year, I will be sort of replenished and, and recharged and ready to uh, move into the next year and, and everything that that, uh, that entails, because it, it's going to be intense. I mean, with the political climate and, you know, all this, all these horrible things and, you know, with our work being to make the world better, while it seems like it's sort of steadily crumbling around us. Um, that's dark. Sorry. Um, <laughs> sorry about, about that. Um, it, it just seems like we're going to need to be even work even harder to, to get the work done that we're trying to do. So I'm going to take this time and take this month to, to try to, to do some things for me so that I can be effective moving forward. Well, I wish you all the luck with that. I'll be looking forward to seeing how that turns out at the end of the year. <laughs> um, so we'll we'll post a link again to the GoFundMe in the show notes and also your Patreon so people can check that out. What other social media, if anyone wants to follow along your work, where would you direct people towards? Wow, there's just so much. Um, so definitely uh, follow Thrive Be More um, on all the social media platforms, the Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um and as well as the Greener Kitchen, I think it's Greener Kitchen Co. Co. Um, and you know, we could we can really use some support over at the Greener Kitchen. We had gotten tons and tons of support for Pep Foods, um, and then we sort of had to migrate everything over to the Greener Kitchen. And, um, and so I think it may be a little bit confusing for folks right now trying to figure out, okay, what's going on here. So, um, go over to the greener kitchen, check us out there. Um, Afro vegan society, you know, can definitely use people's, um, support in spreading the word and letting folks know that, uh, this is a resource for folks from marginalized communities who just want, um, information and resources and support. 
Um, and follow Vegan Soul Fest. We are really going to um, ramp things up for this year. Um, and then look out for us uh, with the mac and cheese competition. We have inspired tons of other mac and cheese competitions around the country. And so we've had to um, try to sort of say, stay ahead of that curve. Um, and so we have some really exciting things that we're going to be announcing in the new year about where the world mac and cheese championship Ooh. will be going <laughs> in the in the next uh, few years. So stay tuned for that. Oh, that's amazing. I feel like a mac and cheese cook-off is so much more exciting than a chili cook-off. So. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> it's everybody's favorite comfort food. I mean, what can you say? Uh, all right, Brenda, thank you so much for taking the time to do this and, and you know, taking time out of your busy schedule. Thank you. Thank you so much for um, your support and for seeing this work as important enough to want to talk about on your show. I just so appreciate it. So we hope you enjoyed that interview with Brenda Sanders. Uh, as you know, we're in we're in the midst of this this interview series. So you got another wonderful interview coming up next week, and then a couple weeks after that, you got some classic interviews. And and we really hope that you're enjoying these interviews as much as we are. We hope you enjoy revisiting some of these old interviews that we're going to throw at you in a couple weeks. And you know, as always, if you have any comments or, or anything, feel free to email them to us, thebeardedvegans at gmail.com. We are in the with the disclaimer that we are in the midst of this this semi break and we may not get back to you until until after the break so i guess just keep that in mind but we do love hearing from you and, and appreciate all everyone's input and feedback and and comments so paula are you saying it could take a month or longer for us to respond i feel like a month response time is actually pretty good for us <laughs> set the bar low andy and and you won't disappoint anyone so paul that that stall 11 mm-hmm. restaurant you're talking about they're just literally in the number 11 stall or is that it was deceptive because they were not booth number 11 so in their sign at the vegan mac and cheese one was like it said stall 11 and then next to it like 36 or something like that oh because i was gonna say that that would be like a, a horribly unimaginative name uh, almost as unimaginative as just ending every single episode by saying the following seven words. <laughs> we are the Bearded Vegans, signing off. So we hope you enjoyed that interview with Brenda Sanders. Um, what else do we got to say? <laughs> Let me try that again. Beardos, love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay.